Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com, and my name is Darren McDuffie, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to have a great show for you. We are interviewing Dr. Amber Brooks, and we're, we're going to be talking about her book, 15 Things Your, your uh, Doctor Doesn't Know About Your Child, and we'll have some great stuff for you. But before I do, uh, make sure that you go back to next week's show and just listen to next week's show where I interviewed Dr. Sachin Patel regarding functional medicine. We had a great show last week, a lot of um, good, powerful information in that show. And if you've missed that show, please make sure you go and download that show and listen to it because, again, it was a, a power-packed informational type show. All right, without further ado, I wanted to bring to the show Dr. Amber Brooks. Dr. Brooks, are you there? I am. Thank you. Welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, my obligatory question for everyone is to kind of share their background. And you have a very interesting background, and I'll have some questions for you later. But can you share with, with us how did you get into health and wellness? Well, how I got into health and wellness is I feel like forever ago. I have always worked with children, and I'd say since about the age of 12. And I had my own health issues as a teenager, and I... It was very frustrating to be in the doctor's office and be talked at instead of talked to. So I always knew I wanted to be in the medical field, didn't know what role I wanted to play exactly. But when I went through that, getting into my late teens and out of high school, I decided I wanted, really wanted to be the doctor that I wish my parents could have brought me to as a kid. Mm -hmm. So that's why I do what I do today. Well, great. Um I come from a pharmaceutical background, and I remember when I would go into doctor's offices, I would always try to get a 50-foot um, view, so to speak, of their practice. Um, with your practice there, are you seeing more boys than girls when it comes to the conditions you're treating, or is it a, 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 a pretty good mix of what you're seeing? That's a good question. I think for my specific specialty or the, the patients that are attracted to my practice, it is probably more boys than girls and all ages. I'm getting in parents that are really, really educated nowadays, and I'm my youngest in practice right now is 14 days. Wow. Wow. And is it something to do with... Um, the conditions that you're seeing where you're seeing more boys and girls? I know that you deal with autism and things of that nature, but is it more common to see boys with that type of, those type of conditions than it is girls, or is just the, the, uh, the paradigm of your practice? I would say it is statistically more common. Autism and autism spectrum disorders in general are more common among boys and girls, but I also think that boys are targeted perhaps a bit more. Not that I don't believe the, the statistics, because I actually think the statistics are, I think right now the CDC released in 2014, one in every 68 boys has autism or is diagnosed with autism, mm -hmm. or one in every 58, excuse me. So I think that's probably accurate. So, But the girls that I see that are having the same type of issues, they very much present differently. I have a family in our practice right now. They have a boy and a girl, and both of them have been diagnosed with autism, and they are polar opposites in symptomatology. So it, it really is more of an art and science when you're treating children 
with special needs or any kind of delay because they don't exactly read the book before they get to you. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any type of medical uh, thing with that where um, you're seeing more boys than girls? Is that something that's just common? It is more common. They, when they've done a little bit of research uh, on on it and they, they think it's due to the hormones in boys versus girls, and again, you know, with boys, I think they tend to be targeted more for behavior issues and such, but the girls don't tend to have as bad of behavior, at least traditionally, as the boys do that are on the spectrum. So, I mean, there is a bit of science behind it, but statistically speaking, it's hard to say if it's, if it's really the science or if it's just that they're targeted more for that label than the girls are. Yeah. Um Getting back to children, I'm a big believer in children. I think that a lot of the things that we're going through now could have been prevented in childhood if, if just kids were taught the basics of nutrition and some other things. And, of course, there are some things that you can't um, – you, you wouldn't be able to kind of circumvent because a lot of that is up to the mother. How much of what you're seeing now might have depended on the mother's state of being when she was – having her child, for instance, with nutrition or um, just different types of aspects? You know, that's such a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question in all my years. It's a great question, though. I would say if you want to trace back as far back to things that the mom can't really control is things like genetics. Mm -hmm. For instance, if a woman's having trouble conceiving and she has to do in vitro or or injections and all that fun stuff that they have to go through to get pregnant, a lot of times those women have conditions that are also passed down to their children that make them a higher likelihood for being labeled with some kind of developmental disorder or on the autism spectrum. And what I'm, the specific genetic mutation I'm talking about is MTHFR. Mm -hmm. And this actually keeps women from, uh, from having children or, it's really the cause of why a lot of women have miscarriages. So when these when these babies are born with this particular genetic mutation, and it really has to do with folate metabolism. It's not quote you know it's not the end of the world. It's not like something like Down syndrome that you can see, right? Um, this is something that kind of goes under under the radar. So you add in just genetic predispositions that a woman might have, disease processes that a woman might have, such as an autoimmune condition that's untreated or not being dealt with properly, add that on to, you know, not eating well, maybe vaccinations during pregnancy, medications during pregnancy that she maybe shouldn't be on, but are told are okay. You compound all of those things. And it's kind of where enough of enough of an insult really breaks the breaks it down into something that's a negative effect, right? I always tell women, there's nothing that you did wrong that you know, because of course there's this guilt there that women think if I would have done something right, my child wouldn't be autistic. And I, I believe that early intervention is the key, but I do believe there's just some things that you couldn't have changed. And that even, even if I say, even if you knew everything you knew today, yes, you do things differently. But at the time, the people that were around you, your family, your friends, your physicians, everybody was telling you to do it this way. And it's the only way that you knew. So that was a big, big problem propeller, if you will, of me writing the book, because there was nothing out there really talking about how do I see these developmental delays coming or how do I stop them from happening or what are the things, because I say a lot of things in that book that are, that are very much 
different than what they're taught to do by their pediatrician because of what I've seen in my own experience in my own practice. So I think percentage-wise, there's probably, you know, maybe 25 to 35% something that you could have done differently. But a lot of those things, there's really nothing you can do. I always tell a mom, if your baby metabolizes or detoxifies improperly, they got that from you. They got that from dad. So that's just those inborn things that were unfortunately given that are passed down. Yeah, there there seems to be a big, I, I don't like to say problem, but it seems that there's a big issue where a lot of people are toxic nowadays, uh, for, for instance, heavy metals. If you have a mother that has a large amount of heavy metals in her body, has never done any detoxification, can that kind of contribute to her child's condition uh, for, say, like uh, autism? I guess it depends because if, you know, we were all that, you know, I was vaccinated when I was a child and those those things have heavy metals and so do medications and you know, things, things that we've been exposed to just in the environment alone. I would say anything she did preconception, it just depends on how much was done and how well her body detoxifies. Everybody's body is different. So you and I, maybe 10 adults could stand in a room and each of us could do the same testing. And as physically fit as you are and as I am, we could end up having some of the worst test results in the room you know, you can't really know by looking at someone. It's just really how the body's dealing with it on the inside. That's why I always tell people, don't be fooled by what you're looking at in the mirror because you can be one of the more unhealthy people in the room just depending on how your body's functioning. So, you know, again, that's really tough to to know. Now, if a mother gets, you know, dental amalgam fillings when she's pregnant, if she gets the flu shot and, and other vaccinations, if she's traveling, for instance... Uh, while she's pregnant, yes, those things can cross the placenta. So, you know, it really does depend on when she does those things and and how her body has detoxified throughout her own life. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot here because I had a question for you and you you brought it up. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. What is your opinion on vaccinations? My opinion on vaccinations in today's society is that it's overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, re- the regular schedule is is quite frankly overkill. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty easy for me to say that, you know, my background in alternative medicine and then my, you know, my, my training in education in alternative and my training in education in traditional medicine has told me, you know, that we don't need that many. And I think it's kind of a fear. I always tell parents, I think it's a great idea to get educated about the different vaccinations because then you can decide which ones you want to do, which ones you feel are necessary and then I like to do an alternative schedule if, if a pediatrician's open to it, just because their bodies are so fragile at, at, at that first year of life, and getting a, you know getting more than thirty vaccinations in a year it is overkill, and maybe not something that's needed if a, if a child stays home with a nanny, doesn't have any siblings, doesn't you know all of these things. So I think there's ways to to get around those things. Um, and I always tell parents, you know, you don't want to vaccinate when your child's sick because their immune system's already being challenged with an illness. So don't compound the problem by, you know, giving them a live attenuated vaccine. So I think, I think that if a, if a, it's a parent's right to choose whether they want to vaccinate their child, their child. And I'm very, very strongly for that. I don't think the government, uh, should at any way, shape or form be involved in that decision whatsoever. 
Yeah, I would, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with you there. Um, you have a very interesting background. I didn't touch on this when we first began, but um, you are a registered nurse and you're also a chiropractor. Yeah. What made you kind of want to get into the integrative type medicine or the functional medicine and, and helping kids? Because normally what you will see, my sister's a registered nurse, by the way, and normally what you will see is you will have someone who goes through that training and then they'll stay on that side. And they won't get in or branch out into uh, someone like yourself where you got into a more integrative type and doing the testing and, and getting to maybe the root cause of illness. What made you go in that direction? I would say it was about, you know, it, the worlds are so different and it's so awesome to be able to put both sets of glasses on. In the alternative realm, we definitely have our downfalls just as in traditional realm, right? So with, with chiropractic, I only, I mean, I never wanted to see adults. I always wanted to help children and that's all I do. I don't actually see adults in my practice. I only see children. So for me, if I would have had a doctor that really got down to the root cause of what was causing my pain and headaches as a teenager, I wouldn't have had the troubles that I had. So I knew that that wasn't the whole answer. However, having that background as a registered nurse, I have more respect for nurses than probably anyone in, in traditional medicine because you know you never know until you're there how much responsibility they have, that they know the medications better than a lot of the physicians because they're they're having to work with them every day. They're 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 double checking everything that the doctor does and quite frankly they're finding a lot of errors. So I, I'm so thankful that they're there watching over children specifically to make sure that not, you know, that a child doesn't die from a wrong medication or a wrong dose or things like that. So I think there is something to be said for medication being needed. And I do use medication in the practice. Uh, I, I work with the pediatricians with my kids that, that need it, but obviously most above 95% of what I take care of in my practice from a functional medicine standpoint is done naturally. However, there is a time and a place. So I think, you know, to answer that question, I think there's a time and a place for both. And I'm able to see the pros and cons of both sides and utilize the best to, of my abilities to bring the best to my patients from both sides. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there with respect to nurses, because I know um, coming from being a pharmaceutical representative that... Um, I was often more versed on the medication than most of the doctors who were prescribing the medication. So I have a, a lot of respect for nurses because I would always talk to them because they were more current with what was going on versus the doctors in, in yeah. some aspects. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're exactly right there. Um, I'm going to share a little personal thing with you and it'll kind of segue into the next question. But when I was a child, I... They weren't diagnosing people with ADD or ADHD, and I'm still a kind of what I call a fidgety adult. <laughs> so, But I used to have this really bad habit of sitting on my mom's couch, and I would sit there, and I would rock back and forth and hit the back of the couch. And it was – I think I did that up until about six or seven years old. And I remember my mom taking me to a psychologist, and there was there was really nothing they could do to me. And then later on, I thought that when ADD or ADHD came out, I was like, well, maybe I was probably that. And I was so lucky that they didn't have any medications back then. But what you see with a lot of um, 
children today is the parents will medicate them when it comes to behavior. I'm sure you've been in Walmart and you see kids fall out and they're screaming and kicking. And um, if the parent can't seem to grab a hold of them uh, from a behavioral standpoint, then they want to medicate them. What are some things that you think that we could do as parents that might not be going that medication route, getting them on an ADD or ADHD medication that kind of uh, curtail their behavior if they're having behavior problems? Right. Let me first start by saying what's tough about the ADD and ADHD medications is it is a, it's a throw it into the fire and hope that it works. Um, in, in many cases, it really strips kind of the identity of the child, although it gets them calmer. And it is a quick fix. It's why parents are, are into it. The other side are the parents that are giving it, that hate it, that don't want to be on it, but they don't know of any other thing that they can do because they're told by the schools, you better get this under control or you're not, they're not coming back. And so there are many parents I've seen over the years that are given ultimatums. You come with medication that we can give them or they're out of school. So I think I don't really blame parents for going down that pathway when they know no different. The, and then there's, you know, then you, of course you have the parents that despite the advice that I may give, they're not really willing to do the work because it's so much easier just to give them a pill. And that's certainly their right. But a couple of great things that I've noticed with ADD and ADHD kids is first of all, not, there is not one child that I've ever seen that doesn't have some other underlying issue going on inside their body that's causing their brain to kind of flip out, if you will. Mm-hmm. And there's there's so many different variations of ADD and ADHD to be discussed when they're in the office with me, for example, because I need to understand what that looks like on that child to be able to help them. The first thing is diet changes. That's, you know, that's a big one that parents can really do on their own. A lot of children are actually very sensitive to the very common things like the dyes in food. You know, they're drinking those sports drinks or they're even drinking soda. Even if they strip out food dyes and sugar from their diet, and I would say it's not something that you should have to do for a very long time to be able to see a difference, but I would say, you know, two to four weeks really make a conscious effort. And when I tell parents to do certain things, I would ask that they do it 100%. And that's because it's it's there's no test that I can run that tells me how much red dye your child can handle before they fall out. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know what that answer is. So if you have, if they drink, you know, three sips of Gatorade or can they drink three of the red Gatorades and, and then lose their mind? Yeah. So that's, that's a fairly easy one because there's lots of juices and lots of things on the shelf that are options. The other one that parents find very helpful and that I really recommend that they get some guidance with is a gluten and casein free diet. And I only say to get guidance because a lot of parents will, you know, go to the Google and they'll download a list of foods and they'll go ahead and eat those. And they might be successful finding things their kid likes. And many, many more times they're unsuccessful because they can't seem to to get a grasp of what to feed them. Many of these kids are also extraordinarily picky eaters. So switching their diet without help can be unsuccessful to say the least, uh, if, if they're not being guided and helped, but can be tremendously successful from a behavioral standpoint. 
Yeah. Um, when it comes to guys, explain guys, because I don't think a lot of parents understand uh, understand those things. Uh, the dyes that are in, you know, sadly, Darren, they're in they're in a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of mind boggling. Anything that says like the FDNC yellow, FDNC red, those are your fake dyes. So they put them in candies, in soft drinks. They even put them anything that's going to make something look pretty. You know, um, I always tell parents if it's not naturally red, then it probably has red dye in it. So it's pretty easy to turn the label around and look for those colorings. Um, again, they'll, they'll say FDNC whatever a lot of times. So that's a really easy way to kind of flip it over. But they don't they don't really, it's not like they're, you know, marketing uh, die free, you know, so you actually have to pay attention. Yeah. Um, talking about casein, uh, there's been a lot of controversy about casein and uh its effects on children with autism. And you mentioned a, a gluten-free casein diet. I guess this whole discussion could probably turn into food sensitivities and food allergies, which is probably what it needs to be. <laughs> but um, talk a little bit about that, the casein-free and the, the gluten-free and the kind, well, more so the controversy that's going around with the autism. And then talk more about the food sensitivity, because I know that it has a lot to do with, um, with the children. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of the book talking about first foods, food allergies, and how they really help to originate developmental delays, how the gut works, what makes it happy, what doesn't. I mean, I would say probably half the book is just on gut alone um, and in relation to food. Um, casein is the protein found in goat, sheep, and cow milk. So anything made from the sheep, goat, and cow derivatives are has casein in it. And that the, the, the casomorphin and the glutomorphin are the two proteins, casomorphin in the dairy and glutomorphin in the gluten, like your oats, wheat, things like that. Those have been found to be very inflammatory in people in general, okay? Not just children, but in people in general. And there's been a lot of great research behind autism specifically and it really being stemming from the gut and the amount of inflammation in there because 70% of our immune system's in our gut. So when that's inflamed, it kind of creeps up the digestive system till it gets to the brain. So when we change the diet and we change the environment in the gut, it makes the brain happier. So it kind of goes back to that. A lot of parents, I would say 75% of parents find a significant improvement on a gluten and casein-free diet. The other 25%, it's not that they're not getting the benefit of it. It's that it may not be showing as, as beneficial because maybe their behavior wasn't as bad as some of the other children. So really the, the goal behind it is to reduce the amount of inflammation in the gut. And there are some really great tests that your doctors can run to see if you have a, an allergy and a sensitivity, which you need to do both because a food allergy, we all know a lot of us have been tested at some point, but a food sensitivity, uh, which is referred to as an IgG mm -hmm. food sensitivity, that is a long-term exposure to food versus an immediate exposure to food, which is what they're typically testing children for. What they don't really test them for is those food sensitivities. And when you have enough exposure, again, like I was just talking about the red dye, I'm not sure how much of a food a child can handle before that inflammatory response kicks in. 
And that's where doing food sensitivity testing can really help you get a diet for your child long-term that you can follow that's very, very much directed at them as individuals. Yeah. You, you do IgE testing in your, your practice as well? I do tons of testing in my practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't really a kid that doesn't come in here that doesn't get tested. So we do urine testing, stool testing, blood testing, and the gamut of all kinds of different tests within that, depending on what the kid's struggling with and, and what I might need to look at. But those would be, you know, those would be kind of the sources, if you will, of, of what we're looking at. And then the different tests that are ran just kind of depend on the kiddo. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, I worked for a food sensitivity testing lab um, last year for a while, and um, the amount of sensitivities that I saw on people's tests when it came to um, eggs and milk. And uh, I used to talk to doctors about the fact that ear infections were tied, in, like recurring ear infections in children mm-hmm. were tied mostly to dairy and egg um, allergies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very true. Yeah, it's very, very weird. That, that that happens and that you can take a food out. And I, I had a testimony from a doctor that actually was a chiropractor and she took eggs out of her um, child's diet and the stomach aches disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And it's amazing how many parents don't, don't do that with their child. Um, when it comes to nutrition, there's a lot of things <laughs> that are happening. You have p- kids that are eating Lunchables, you have kids that are eating. Um, I did a video a while back on hot Cheetos. <laughs> there are all kinds of things that these children are eating. What is the best diet for a child, for you know, someone that you're working with in your practice? Well, you know, it's I have. There's a perfect world that we don't live in, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's reality. So. I think for every parent, you know, I have those parents that are lucky enough where mom gets to stay home with the children and she is willing and able to cook from scratch and bake from scratch and do all those amazing things. And then I have parents that are both working full time and they get home from the sitter at seven o'clock at night and nobody is cooking a home cooked meal at night. So I think the answer and, and, you know, you're in Florida and I'm in Texas, but I think the answer is to really buy fresh, organic foods for your home. That's the best gift that you can give to your children. Keep the food dyes out. Keep the sugar at a minimum. And keep it, you know, keep sweets more like a treat, not, a, not an every night. You know, you don't need to have dessert every night. I mean, really, let's, let's be serious. And then there's some really great restaurants in I know in the major metro areas, um, there's a place called Snaps Kitchen here in Dallas, and there are several locations, and you can go in. Everything in their refrigerator is gluten-free. Everything's cooked several times a day in their kitchen that is completely hypoallergenic. And if you also have a casein allergy or a soy allergy or something like that, they can direct you to what you can eat, and it's all organic, all homemade. Mm. So if you're willing to spend the money... Um, and you don't want to cook at home. There's definitely places that you can stop nowadays that have those really fresh options that were made the same day with really great ingredients. So that would be my perfect, you know, no, that your kids are not eating at the cafeteria. And some of these fancy schools in Dallas that people are paying college money to put their kids in all year, these cafeterias are like gourmet restaurants. It's crazy to me 
the things that kids that like eight can eat for lunch, um, they're eating like kings and queens for sure, but it's still not super healthy. So I would rather them be packing their lunch or that the parents go in and have a meeting with the, the chef of the school and say, look, this is what we're trying to do, especially with kids that are overweight and not getting a lot of exercise, mm-hmm. um, that they really take the time to meet with the appropriate people at the school to try to get it, to kind of wrangle it. I have kids that, that have done things. I, I mean, this is one of the funniest stories I've heard. Last week I had a new patient and she was this little girl and I could tell by the look in her eye that she was, she would manipulate anybody, you know, to get what she wanted. And so apparently the lunch lady knows her by first name because she always goes in and she tells her that her parents are starving her and they don't pack a lunch for her because they don't have any money. (laughs) And of course her parents find this out and they're mortified. Mm. So she has ran her credit at school down to like negative $200 because the school keeps giving her whatever she wants because they think that she's starving. And so she's eaten, you know, ding-dongs and pizza and ice cream Friday and her parents had no idea I mean can you imagine how much how long it takes you to get to like over negative a hundred dollars at a school cafeteria so you know it's kids will be manipulative so if if the parents are out of the loop and not communicating with the school that under no circumstances is she starving and under no circumstances are you to feed her so I actually wrote the school a note a medical uh, letter of necessity for her food that if they're going to give her something, they need to give her a piece of fruit because they're like, by law, if she says she's hungry, we can't not feed her. But guess what they're feeding her by law? A sandwich with cheese, like the worst thing they could give her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's about kind of staying in the loop and making making the best choices that you can. Yeah. Are they particularly accommodating out there when it comes to um we, we were just talking about food sensitivities, but I'm wondering if they're accommodating out there. I don't know much about the Florida school system here, but I'm just wondering if they're accommodating out there when kids have these type of food sensitivities or allergies. Yes, and I will say for the parents listening that are kind of like, oh, no, not my school. It, it kind of, it's kind of one of these things where you have to understand that there are some parts of different states that are on like, you know, you have those like groups of moms that are on like super health kicks and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to feed their kid anything and they don't, you know, they don't really actually have a medical reason, but that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not bashing that. But what's happening is the schools are getting so bogged down with all of these moms that they see and they label as, you know, crazy and neurotic, although they are not. But so when you do have a kid with a legit issue, a lot of times the schools are like, oh, yeah, we've dealt with this. Because a lot of the moms, especially that I work with, are very, very outspoken about their child's rights and if they're not I'm usually you know their biggest cheerleader in the corner like you need to get up and you need to go see someone because they don't you know they, they don't get to do whatever they want with your kid while they're, your kid's there that's not the way this works so I'll write a letter I'll talk to a school nurse I'll talk to the cafeteria lady whatever I need to do for my patients to help that easier I do but a lot of parents are very very surprised that when they go to the school with the letter that the school is like, oh, well, we had, you know, oh, of course, we're happy to, you know, to accommodate. Let me, let me see what's happening. And a lot of times the parents, it's more of the parents being weary than anything. Things like, I don't want my kid to be different when there's a school party and they can't have cupcakes. 
So I say, okay, we'll talk to your teacher and let them know that your child has food allergies. And if there's going to be a party that you want to be able to bring treats for the party that your child can eat. And you can make gluten and casein free brownies and gluten and casein free cupcakes. And you can get cookies and all that fun stuff. But the parents need to be notified so that that child doesn't feel left out. So I think it, it comes down to very, very good communication. Yeah, they have a place that's right around the corner for me. They make uh, casein-free and gluten-free cupcakes. But, man, those you buy two cupcakes, it's like $11. <laughs> well, you know, I just went to New York this week, uh, this weekend, and I love New York. It's one of my favorite places. And every time I'm there, I'm always, like, hunting down a gluten-free places. And I went to this bakery, and I, I got – this bakery was amazing. It's um, – oh, it was amazing. Anyway – I box. I just got one of everything that I wanted and take it back to my hotel. And I think I spent thirty five dollars on like a couple cookies, a couple cupcakes, a donut, you know. And I was like, oh, yeah. But it's worth it though, because I'm gluten free too. And I'm like, man, sometimes you just want to have a cookie or something, and it's it's certainly worth it. Oh yeah, I junked out on that stuff. I enjoyed every bite of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. um, getting back to kids on a scale of one to ten. And you see a lot of children in your practice. How toxic are our kids now? Oh. Oh, wow. Let me put it to you this way before I answer it. I have parents that will all say, I want to do urine, stool, and blood testing to start so I get a good clinical picture of what, what's going on, what I have to chase down, and what I have to do additional testing on. And they'll say to me, well... We feed them well, and they've not been vaccinated. You know, they'll make a case for those few kids that come in that have maybe educated parents that, you know, knew what kind of food to feed them and what have you. And I'll tell them the same thing I'm going to say now. I've never tested a child the first round that ever had normal labs. Never. Hmm. Never one time. (laughs) So I tell them, if I thought that your child was perfectly fine, first of all, you would have never called my office. And secondly, I wouldn't be asking you to do it. So your kid will be the first if your kids if your labs come back clean. You'll be the very, very first. So yeah. I would probably say a nine out of ten. Yeah, and what are some of the things that you do to kind of get them get them detoxified? Detoxification really for children happens naturally. You know, if they're having if they have all the essential vitamins and minerals to function and barring their functioning well, which a lot of them are not their body will detoxify on its own with some time and some help. Really what I'm trying to get at is more of the inflammatory issues. So what kind of bad bacteria, bad yeast, any parasites, any inflammation in there, um, foods that are inflammatory, let's get all of that out. Let's clean all of that up so that a basic vitamin mineral will actually do its job and help their body be as successful as it can on its own. Um, but it really can't absorb any of those vitamins and minerals like the parents that are like, well, yeah, I know they don't eat well, but we give them, you know, a Flintstone, you know, a Flintstone every night, um, which, as you know, are probably one of the worst on the market. Yeah, so, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, th- those cheap vitamins are, are all synthetic ingredients, um, which the body doesn't even recognize. So you might as well just, you know, give them a bag of skittles every night it's really it's really the same yeah, i grew up so, on those I, my grandmother used to buy those i remember when they, they came in the glass jar and i used to eat those things like candy oh yeah i did too <laughs> I too i mean we all we're all and what's sad is i just saw a lady in the line blank flintstones at cbs the other day and i'm like they still make this stuff are you serious yeah. so 
Um, yeah, they're still going strong. But, you know, a, a doctor that you see will be able to get you on a really good pharmaceutical grade supplement. And we and I have my own supplement line, uh, Healthy Kids Nutrients. And we have a multi that, of course, I love and, and I formulated myself. So mm-hmm. I could really get that. That was something I really struggled with in practice is finding just the basics for kids that was out there that was good enough. And, and, and there's really not a lot that's good enough for them. So my standard's pretty high, I understand, but I don't want them, I don't want parents spending money on stuff that's a waste of money. That's just garbage. You mentioned a multi, which I, you know, I, people come at me and I'll recommend a multi, but um, a whole food supplement multi, obviously. And um, what are some other supplements that you might use in your practice for, for your kids? Because I know a lot of parents out there, well, a multi, and is there anything else? Yeah, um, on the Healthy Kids Nutrients website, there is a fish oil, it's a partner brand of ours, but it's a great fish oil that I love, that I've used for probably six years now, and I'm obsessed with it. It's called Speak Nutrients, Um, so you can check that out. And then the multi, of course, I think every kid should be on a multi and a really good fish oil. And then probably if you haven't taken a probiotic or your child hasn't taken a probiotic in a while, you may want to give them a, a, you know, a couple months of probiotics. I'm really not a fan of being on probiotics every day for the rest of your life because too much of a good thing can be a bad thing mm-hmm. because that's how gut flora works. And so I think we have five different probiotics in our line. Um, so sometimes parents can, if they go to like Whole Foods, for example, or another health food store, a lot of the brands out there that are on the shelf are not GMP certified, which basically means they can put whatever they want on the label and no one's babysitting them. Um, it also, they also all tend to just have acidophilus and bifido and because they're, they're the least expensive strains, I believe. So I think that's why all of them have that versus you really want to get a probiotic that's really good as far as getting as many cultures as you can to repopulate the gut. And you don't need to find just one. I mean, you can use and alternate between, you know, two or three to get a bunch of different things in. Yeah. Do you, your website, you have a probiotic on there that you've. Yeah, we, um, it's the, it's www.healthykidsnutrients.com. And you can, you know, they can check all that out on the website, but those would probably be the three. Um, they'll see more stuff like for immune function, um, and, and specialty products that we have as well. But those, I think if you just started your kid on diet changes, a multi and an omega fish oil, that was really great. You would see, you would see some changes even before you could get in to see a doctor. Yeah. A lot of people forget about those probiotics and how important they are to the digestive system, especially in kids. And you're seeing a lot of kids that have digestive issues now. Um, Let's talk about what you're doing now because we we, kind of got off on a tangent. And I know that you're a chiropractor by trade. That's what you do in your office. Um, And I'm a big believer in chiropractic. I think that probably saved my basketball career. And I still do it now. I try to get one, an adjustment every one, maybe two times a month or more if needed. How important is it for a child to get an adjustment? And the second part of that question would be, how soon can a child get one? Yeah, I would say basically any, as early as you want to get out of your house with a newborn, uh, right? like right now, my youngest, right now that I'm currently seeing is 14 days old. Um, and he is having feeding issues, which this is going to, 
change all of that because I do chiropractic and, and craniosacral therapy. And on the babies, the craniosacral therapy is really the portion that I'm working with the most. So there really isn't an age, you know, when to start. I think if you can get in early, that's great. I actually had a patient that called me that came in for a visit for feeding issues four years ago. And the husband wasn't on board, so they only came in for two treatments. And they just went to a dentist, and the child's having all kinds of speech issues. And the dentist suggested that they get craniosacral therapy. So needless to say, the dad, the mom called, and, the, and she said that the dad is beside himself because this would have never been an issue had they come in early and actually done their treatment. So that's, that's the first thing. I think chiropractic can be very beneficial to children. They don't work like you and I do. I mean, you're an, you, you have an athletic background, as do I. I could probably be adjusted every week because, you know, I'm sleeping weird or I'm in high heels or, you know, I do CrossFit. So I work out like a maniac. Um, you know, our bodies have muscle memory from injury and things like that. Children are very, uh, I don't know, they're, they're just, they're resilient. They're amazing. So a lot of kids don't need to be adjusted all the time. I usually see the kids once a month. Most of what I spend my days doing are, is functional medicine for the children that need something a bit more. And then, of course, they always get chiropractic. But if they're sick, like I have one coming in after we, we get off t- today, he actually started running a fever last night. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll be able to break his fever uh, today so he can go back to school tomorrow. Yeah, and you, I, I was watching one of your videos, and uh, you had something about the adjustment and how it helps constipation. And I know there are a lot of children out there that tend to get constipated. Um, explain that. I, I know from the video, but I thought it was uh, rather intriguing yeah. about the constipation and, and being adjusted. It's so funny because the word constipation is so subjective, too. People are like, oh, my kid poops like twice a week. It's like, please, they got to be pooping every day. Well, you but have adults that a lot of times, you know, kids are bouncy. They're bouncy balls. I always say they're yeah. bouncy balls. They bounce off things and they get right back up and they keep going. But they can get rotation in their in their pelvic and sacral regions. And those nerves that go out of that region of your spine actually innervate your poop chute, so to speak. And so if they get rotated there, you know, I have kids that, you know, climb out of trees. They have trampoline at home. Um, they run up against walls, they horse, you know, they like to wrestle and things like that. Um, they'll come in for an adjustment and they'll poop that day. Um, so, you know, if they have those little kind of little malpositions, if you will, or subluxations in that bottom portion of their pelvis, a simple adjustment for a child like that can be amazing and work obviously very, very quickly. Yeah. And and you have a lot of adults that are constipated, but Going back to the uh, craniosacral therapy, what, and this is the last question, what is that, does that exactly involve? Because I was very interested in that. I never heard that terminology before. Yeah. Um, I do have a whole page on craniosacral therapy at, um, on our practice website at mychildwellness.com. So parents can kind of look at that, but it's a very gentle therapy that is used I always say, you know, chiropractic is really adjusting the bones and craniosacral is adjusting the soft tissue. So it very much looks like I'm, I'm moving and working on the skull in essence. And some people look, think it's a massage, but it, it isn't. You're actually working with the tissue that surrounds the brain and spinal cord called the dural tissue. And that dural tissue can get wrinkled. So you use the cranial bones almost like a handle to iron out that tissue and all the nerves that puncture through that tissue 
are going to different parts of the body and being innervated, which is why it's such a powerful therapy to use. I always tell parents it's a it's a short-term therapy for a very long-term benefit versus, you know, parents that are in speech therapy three times a week for years. This is really something that um, a doctor can do or even, I mean, even a, a PT, PTs can be licensed to do it occupational therapists, uh, chiropractors, obviously, and some massage therapists do it as well. You'll just want to really make sure that you ask them, you know, the right questions before you bring your child in. But it's really about balancing out the nervous system just in a different way than doing an adjustment. It's, but it's very complementary to an adjustment. Oh, okay. Um, what are your, do you work with people? I know you work with people, but do you work with people like do Skype consultations or anything like that? Or do they have to actually be um, in your office to, to work with you? Or That's come a great to your office? Uh, we have, I have patients that have come in. We have several from out of the country. As long as they come in for their first visit, uh, mm-hmm. so I can do an exam, which I obviously need to do. The rest of their visits can be via Skype or phone. So we have a ton of those. Um, I actually have a a number of patients in Florida just because they couldn't, they couldn't find the right functional medicine fit. Um, So I didn't, luckily nowadays, you don't really have to limit yourself as long as you, as long as we've got their primary doctor in the area, if they should need something, Mm -hmm. um, then, then that's, that's all we need. And what are your websites? And if, if people want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Yeah, sure. A couple things. Um, Unfortunately, there's a couple. (laughs) Uh, The first one is the practice website. That is mychildwellness.com. And we have a ton of information and research for parents to read and blogs and all kinds of fun stuff. The other thing is that we do parent and clinician webinars every month. And they can look at what's coming up this month at dramberbrooks.com. There's a little education tab at the top and they can see uh, the parent ones are actually free. So anyone can attend, and the, and the clinician ones are only $25. So those are offered, again, on, through the webinar online. And then our supplement line is healthykidsnutrients.com. Great, great. Yeah, I didn't check out the Healthy Kids Nutrients. I'll have to go in and check that one out. But um, Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the interview. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. All right, guys, remember that you can connect with me on social media, uh, facebook.com slash I'm the fat man. And then you can also connect with me on Pinterest at I'm the fat man, one, the number one. And then Twitter is the fat underscore man. And um, also you can uh, download all of these shows in iTunes. They're all available on iTunes and Stitcher as well. Or you can go to blogtalkradio.com. And listen to them from there, too. So you have many outlets where you can listen to the show. Thanks, peace, and love. And I'll see you on the next episode.